Hey, I'm Mary Ellen Dance, licensed mental health counselor and owner of Pittsburgh Therapy. I'm on a mission to strip away the stigmas surrounding therapy and mental health and talk about how we can use the culture of self-improvement for our benefit rather than our demise. I used to think I was doing life all wrong, from getting fired from a dream job to advising clients on relationships while I myself was trying to sort through that dumpster fire. But then I realized my imperfections are what made me a good therapist. So join me on a journey not to be perfect, but to be well, okay-ish. Welcome. Your session has now started. So today I have with me Dr. Shanna Teal, and you are an organizational psychologist. And if you can explain to everyone what that means... Okay, right. <laughs> yes. And you know, it's funny now, I think people are more familiar with what that is even five, 10 years ago. So an organizational psychologist is really a psychologist for organizations for workplaces, right? So it's the combination of really looking at the intersection of human behavior and business and organizational practices, right? So a lot of my work is I'm going in and I'm looking at kind of three, sometimes four concentric circles, like the individual in the organization and how the individual is being impacted and are, is their work system set up for them to perform at their optimum, right? And in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion, organizations are having to think a lot more about that individual piece of the equation nowadays. In my view, they should have always been thinking about it, but now it's much more important and much more of a strategic focus for companies. Then there's the group dynamics, right, of the organization. And then there's the organization itself. And so as an organizational psychologist, we go in and we kind of assess those three different layers, right? Like sometimes they come in from the organizational level and they say, ouch, we need a cultural change, right? Or you get a new leader in a business and they say, oh, I came into this and we really need to shift right. culture. How can I do that? And then sometimes I'm called to just come in and work with an executive team, right? They want to grow or they're having some struggles. Sometimes it's growth oriented and sometimes it's problem focused. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of heartburn. Uh, and then a lot of times I'm working at the individual level doing executive and leadership coaching. And then sometimes I'm doing all of it in one organization, moving in and out of that. There's a fourth circle that I touch sometimes, but less is like the customer interface, right? Like I do work with some sales organizations and we're really thinking a lot about their customers and their yeah. intersection with customers, community impact, that societal impact. But really, organizational psychology is like those three I described. So, do you just love that you're doing a little bit of everything? You know, I'm sure each organization is different. And as the organizational changes, like your role changes too, working with them, like, is that just fun? <laughs> it sounds fun. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is. It's, you know, I, I went through the painstaking process over 20 years ago, like I said, when I left the clinical world. And being a clinical psychologist, because I always knew I wanted to be a clinical psychologist, but once I got a taste of being in the business world, because I always had a business brain, I, I had to leave clinical psychology behind because for me, this was a little bit more fun and a little bit more motivating. And I loved my clinical clients, but it was just one thing. This allows me to deal with the individual, with the system, with complex business issues, 
you know, in some ways it's similar to the clinical world. You or working with a family, you go in and you look at the system and you look at the dynamics and all of that. But I like the diversity of what I do. You know, if I just did one thing every single day, that would be hard for me. And that's just my personality. So I do like the diversity of it. That's fantastic. And I have a question about organizations. So do you find that organizations are really, really willing to bring you on? I guess is what I want to ask. I might change that question based on what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, it depends. It re- it's one of those, this is a very social psychologist question. It depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are a lot of organizations, small and large corporations that are very training and development friendly, right? They like, I have a handful of clients. In fact, my long-term clients, they would be known culturally for training their people, developing their people, wanting their people to grow, Then there's other organizations, there's the opposite end of that continuum that I'll get phone calls from, right? Like they've never done one thing for their teams. I still get calls today that I'm surprised. I'm like, you have never developed your leaders at all. Like you've never sent them to a conference. You've never done an executive retreat. You've never done, no, we haven't. And some of that's not out of um, malice or bad intent. It's just that either it wasn't on their awareness or they were too successful making money and they just didn't have time. (laughs) And so there's that piece of it. And then there's a whole lot of people in the middle. They dabble, they do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. The hard part, and it might be changing right now, it used to be training and development of people would be one of the first things that got cut in people's budgets mm-hmm. when the recession, when there was a recession or the economy was bad. During COVID, although none of us knew really what was happening, a lot of my projects, I was getting phone calls like, sorry, I need to take you off the calendar. Sorry, 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 sorry. And I was just like, okay, there goes my year. And then, (laughs) and as an entrepreneur, business owner, you know, way to get through that. You're like, okay, well, I guess I really still get to heal from my burnout. So there's an upside, (laughs) you know. The other piece of that was I found by June of that year, 2020, I had more requests for one-on-one coaching and team coaching than I probably ever had. Wow. And I, you know, and it was trying to figure that out. And we're all awkward figuring out, you know, Zoom and all of those kind of things at first. We're all versed at it now. But just some saying, gosh, we need help. We need support. And and people need it. And the requests started being even a little bit more genuine and personal. Like, hey, we're struggling. Like people are at home with their partners and maybe kids and maybe parents and dogs and like people are struggling. And so the upside of all of this is I felt like the conversation got with leaders about their people more personal, which to me, they've always needed to be like, let's look at the individual, right? And what they truly need. So I mean, I agree with that. And I've heard, I'm not an organizational psychologist, but just in in my work, I've heard a lot of, you know, where is that line? I want to ask my employees how they're doing, but is that appropriate? And I think, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of that kind of depends on where people work in some cases, but it's interesting that that's like now a big question. And I just... Again, this is the therapist in me, but I just don't understand how they're not related. 
Course, <laughs> exactly. If you're going through a divorce at home, of course your work is going to be affected. Like we should talk about that. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, one thing that I notice a lot, and again, this is coming from not an organizational psychology perspective, but one thing I notice is companies being really, really interested in like mental health, wellness, things like that, but not really interested in doing the work, right? They're kind of interested in like checking off the box of like employee wellness, but they don't really want to do the work. I want to hear your perspective on that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do think that's true, but companies are, and I'm having the conversations now, I'm being asked to come in. So a program and a process I've had for a long time is called leader health. And like naturally leader health equals talent health, which equals business health. And this, I've been pushing this for 20 years. People are just finally ready to talk about it. So I'm at the best part, I think of my career, because I'm finally like, yes, I can have every part of the conversation now. I don't have to just segment it to just how someone's performing in their like results of their job. Now I can talk about the whole person. So this is quite complicated because I think the wellness in organizations prior to COVID were very resource-based, right? And benefit-based, right? You could get a massage. We might contribute a little bit to your IVF. Like that would be amazing because that's some organizations do do that. Yeah. You know, they pay for your gym, yeah, gym membership. You know, they might add a little extra to counseling services or elderly care services or yeah. whatever. Like, so it's more, it's been typically resource and benefit based, but now there's a whole other thing that's emerging where we really need to train our leaders to do a little bit of what you and I do professionally to have the conversations in an appropriate way about well-being. They do not have to be therapists, right? They don't have to have the credentials that you and I have, but a skill set to be able to say, hey, look, I've noticed X or I'm concerned about Y and then open up the conversation. And then the employee still has to have a choice, right? If they want to share XYZ or not. And, you know, I think we're going to continue to see HR practices change. It will mm-hmm. be interesting legally what happens on this front. Yep. But leaders do, prior to COVID, we were training leaders on how to be emotionally intelligent, right? The whole world of EQ and all of that has come on board, which I think is great. There's a complementary skill set there that says, okay, if you have worked on practicing your empathy and you know, really tuning into what yeah. people really need. Let's take that and deploy it based on people's well-being. And well-being is in addition to how are you doing emotionally? You know, like how's it going? How's it going? You have three kids at home and an aging parent, and you just put your dog down. Like, let's have a real conversation about that. And I find the leaders that have done the work prior to COVID in terms of practicing empathy and really listening and really demonstrating they care. They rocked it during COVID. They really did. They're like, hey, I'm winning at this COVID thing. Like not COVID, <laughs> but leading leading during COVID. Let me be clear about that. <laughs> I don't, would never want that to be just pulled out like that. Um, because they had already done the work. The leaders that had really kind of pushed back and not done the deeper empathy building and listening. They're the ones that have struggled during COVID and they're the ones now going, gosh, what do I do? Because people aren't coming coming to them. So 
where we saw a big uptick with leaders getting trained on emotional intelligence, you know, in the last several years. And we've had a big uptick on leaders being trained with diversity, equity, and inclusion. My passion is making sure leaders are really focusing on the total health, the integrative health of the person. And that doesn't just mean are you eating broccoli? And, you know, that's crazy. (laughs) You know, it's all of it. It's the, how are you doing physically? And as an organization, that's the wellness link, right? That's where organizations have really fed in. They've addressed more of the physical aspects of wellness, right? Your gym memberships, et cetera. But they, and some might have, like there's the financial aspects of health. Some companies really offer really great resources to help you plan financially, but it's been the emotional relational piece that leaders have been like, oh, I don't know. Do I ask about that? And employees, you know, they don't need you to be a therapist, but if you start going down that path, also know what resources you can provide, right? So, you know, if you have an an employee assistance program, or if you know as a leader, hey, we just put a whole amount of funding into, we've hired three therapists to come on board. Like I have a couple of organizations that have hired full-time psychologists and therapists that are on site now. Like that's amazing. Like that would have never happened before. So, but some people don't, depending how big the company is, they don't know what those resources are. They don't know they can trust those resources. So leaders have to also be willing to offer resources as well. So, yeah. Wow. That's a lot. No, that's incredible. (laughs) It's absolutely incredible. So you have seen success where leaders have done a lot of work with empathy and understanding and supporting all aspects of the person's health. Yes, not all of them, but many of them have tried. And perhaps, you know, it could be a selection bias. And I have clients that have really been ready, but there are leaders that are still like, I think there's leaders that are really development oriented. I want to grow. I want to change. Give me new tools. And I work with a lot of them. Then you have a lot of people in the middle, like, give me what I need right now to plug my gap. Right. And and I'll go. I have a lot of those. And then you get people down here, like, "Eh, I don't really care. Like there's, and I'm not interested anymore in working with the, like, I don't care. Right. Everybody wants to be successful and make money and achieve results. And I'm great with all of that. but. You know, every once in a while, I'll still bump up to someone like, why do I need to grow? Like, and I usually there's a connection to, hey, I'm successful and I'm making enough money or my company's making enough money. Like, why would we invest in this? I don't know that that's going to be sustainable culturally much longer with my generation and your generation saying, "Uh uh-uh, like no more. So what do you think about the trends with, you know, younger than us, like the Gen Z and what's the term quiet quitting? And like, what do you think about all of that? For those who don't know, quiet quitting, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is a term used for people who just go to work and kind of do the bare minimum because they, you know, don't have interest or investment in their company. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some of that quiet quitting, it's interesting because it's getting overlapped with the burnout research. And sometimes quiet quitting is because you're just burnout. You don't have any other options and you can't get out of there. So you have 
just quietly quit and you've decided I'm going to show up and do the minimum. And sometimes it's not related to burnout. It's more related to how I'm being treated. Am I treated fairly? Am I treated equitably? Am I, you know, all of those things. And so people are quietly just shutting down. I think that's always been the case, actually. I don't think that this is a new thing. (laughs) I think one of the things that we've talked about in workshops we've done over the years is that you want the employees that are coming to you saying, hey, I I don't see this right. You want a rich feedback system in your organization. And if you're getting that right, and you're doing at least something to address the feedback you're getting, you're making progress as an organization. But if you don't have a good feedback loop, that feedback loop stops and you're no longer knowing as a leader or as a department how you're doing, you've had people already quietly quit. We're just now, yeah, we're already, we've already been doing that, you know, but it's this idea. Many years ago, there was an author named John Maxwell and he had this um, phrase called the law of the lid and this idea that people will only bump up against those lids for so long. And that lid can be anything. It could be the, the gender pay gap. It could be, I have a jerk as a boss. It could be that I'm not in the right role, but I have to feed my family. So I'm going to stay, whatever that lid is, people will only hit their head for so long. And then a couple things will happen. Some people will have options and choices and they will leave. They'll either leave and try to move to another department or get out of the organization. That's your best case scenario. The worst case is that they bump, they bump, they bump, they then go quiet And then you're wondering what's wrong, right? And what's wrong is that they have quietly quit on you Mm -hmm. and they're just doing the minimum. And depending on the relationship with that direct boss, they might not have just quietly quit. They could then beyond quiet quitting is quiet sabotage, depending on the person and the personality and the dynamics. And that can get really tricky too. So do you think, and this is a broad generalization, what I'm about to ask, so you may not have an answer, but I see, I work a lot with college students and I see a lot of college students expecting to, you know, go into their first job making a lot more money than I made in my first job. I'll say that. Um, what do you think about that? <laughs> this is a hard one, right? Like it is a hard one because I think... I try to wonder, like, what's the root of that? Like, where did that come from, right? Because there's definitely a, it's not everybody in that generation. It's some people in that generation, but there's something culturally that was created to create that mindset, right? So I just think, well, that generation, for the most part, had highly educated parents, parents probably with a good amount of resources, right? It was also during a time where, Culturally, I think we really worked on as parents praising children. I don't have children, so I'm using that as generally speaking, you know, really worked on the praising method versus the criticizing method, right? It went from tough love parenting in the generation before to a little bit more, you know, I'm going to really pump you up and support you. And so I think. You know, I'd like to look at, well, why did that happen? And I think it's because we they, we were giving them a lot of resources, a lot of tools, a lot of validation, and maybe sometimes some false validation, right? Like we told them they were good when they weren't good. We told them they were more prepared than they really were. And, and perhaps they had more opportunities 
to jump into things early because they could and they were resourceful. And guess what? They had resources at their fingertips. So, you know, they could jump onto a job and be like, oh yeah, I've tiled a bathroom before. Right. Nope, they haven't, but they know they're going to go home tonight and YouTube it. And they're going to learn tile a bathroom on the fly, right? So I think there's this intersection. Like I never like to talk about generational differences for years in my work, right? And it's always tricky when people start to look at this group and that group and point fingers and compare and all of that. And I don't ever generation. (laughs) Right, right. But it's this sense of like understanding like, okay, why are they doing? There's a level of confidence there that, I actually am impressed by at times, right? And yet there's confidence that's also not really skilled yet, right? So I think as leaders, it's kind of understanding like, hey, okay, I love that you're confident. I'm going to give you some things so you can really prove yourself. And, but in that, I need you to learn some skills too. So I think what I'm finding too is I just recently last year coached a few Zs, kind of that mix uh, Zs or late Xs. And they were finally hitting the point of like, oh yeah, I don't really know a whole lot yet. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, okay, we're making progress. Like this is good, right? But but I love that generation, right? Like, and I think more people, I think we can do more as older generations to reach down and and really understand why they are how they are. And to also say, hey, look, I'm going to support you with who you are and where you are now. And at the same time, I want you to do the same as you look up because there's still some skills mm-hmm. and maturity that need to happen, right? And people's brains are still developing until at least 25. And our brains are developing throughout our lifetime anyway. So it's like, let's just all be real here, right? And <laughs> Well, and yeah. I agree with you because some of what I've seen more recently is like this confidence that's amazing. And I'm like, oh, I wish I had that confidence when I was 22. <laughs> like that's yeah. incredible. But you know, there's a fine line between confidence and inappropriateness. I had someone yes. who I was interviewing. I was interviewing them for a job with my company and they didn't flat out ask me how much I made, but they pretty much asked me how much I made. And they were like proud of themselves. And I was like, all right, so let's talk about like why that's not, you know, an appropriate question to ask me. And why do you think that that was an appropriate question? Uh-huh. Like things like that, where I'm like, I think there are still, like you said, still skills that need to be developed all the time. Like, yes, our yes. brains aren't fully formed until we're 25 or 26, but still as humans, we're always developing. <laughs> exactly. So it's just well, interesting and I, to see the changes. Yeah. Well, and it's like confidence can only get us so far. So it's like, and I'm all about being confident, but there is not a human being alive unless you're completely malignant narcissist that is fully confident in everything, right? So I think there's confidence and then there's competence mm-hmm. and then there's connection. Like you need to have all three of those, right? Like once I have the connection to you, I might be able to ask you more personal questions, right? right? But if I haven't earned that right in that relationship, I don't get to ask that question. Now I can be confident and I ask and I have to be willing to like receive a no, but I think people need to understand like they have to be developing. There's confidence, competence and connection. And as you know, we're coaching 
these new generations. It's like the competence, that's the skills, right? That's the skills that need to be built. It's not just your confidence will only get you so far. And over time that if you're just leading with confidence and that you know it all, or you can figure it all out, your credibility will suffer. So it's only going to get you so far, right? Like, well, and I tell my college students all the time. And part of this is I grew up with two teachers as parents. And so I was kind of in this mindset my whole life, but like, being able to learn is a skill. (laughs) Being Mm -hmm. able to apply information we learn is a skill. And so, yes, do I want my college students to learn the the information? Yes. But I also want them to learn how to learn and to learn Mm. how to critically think and to learn how to be wrong and then find the correct answer. You know, all of those skills that I think are so important in all of us to be successful in whatever we do. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think some of that has been a short change in the world of, you know, being able to Google everything and look up everything. Like I have, we have really created a generation where we've taken critical thinking out of it. And with my nieces and nephews, we're always talking about this because they'll say, oh, I'll just Google it. I'll Google it. No, we're going to walk that through. We're going to talk that through, right? (laughs) Because you have to learn how to think. Because then I think related to that, learning to learn, learning to critical think, it's so related to our resilience, right? So then COVID happens, everybody's stuck at home. There was no Googling right away, right? Like, how do I remote work when I have, you know, six people in my tiny apartment in Manhattan? Like, how do we do this? Like, there were no how-tos right away, right? Like, there are things in life that will happen where you can't just look it up. And I do think that critical thinking leads into some level. And there's a lot related to resilience. But I think that's part of it. Can I at least think myself through this and have the confidence in my thinking may not get it totally right. But so, So, yeah. So speaking of resilience, you mentioned early on about burnouts Mm -hmm. and I think those two are very related. So tell us more about like the work you do on burnout and the trends that you're seeing with burnout. Yes. Okay. So I love this topic and I love the topic. I hate that I lived it for so long and I, I'm one of those that lived it and I don't want this to be like a scary (laughs) setup for anybody, but if you're not able to one fully recognize it, it takes a long time to get out of it. And it took me probably three or four years to really get out of it. And so the burnout is interesting and I really think it's important. People are misusing stress and burnout. Mm -hmm. So we all have stress. We all need a little bit of stress, right? If you look up the performance curve related to stress, all of us perform a little bit better if there's some level of stress where I know I have to perform or I know I have to be on. We need that for performance. Mm -hmm. Chronic stress is where we get ourselves in trouble, right? When our bodies were never created to constantly turn on those chemicals that are usually meant to be short-term chemicals to get us into action, right? Like cortisol and adrenaline. But what has happened now under chronic stress, those hormones, our adrenal glands are just pumping out those hormones continuously. Mm -hmm. And there's a long-term effect of that, right? I mean, we've all known for years, too much stress is harmful, too much stress causes disease, all of that. I think burnout now is the 
is on the other side of chronic stress, right? So you don't just go from, oh, I'm stressed out today and I have burnout tomorrow. It's not that. It is, it's a long-term cumulative effect. So we really, I do think we can start to get ahead of people who aren't burnout or who think they're burnout. There are people that are in burnout and know it. And there are people who are in burnout that don't know it. I think high achievers are really likely to ignore that they're in burnout unless they're absolutely just completely bottomed out. And so burnout is interesting in that, like, of course, there's physical fatigue that goes with it, like kind of a chronic physical fatigue. And for people who have typically been highly active, perhaps athletic, perhaps just a high capacity individual, right? You can crank out a lot of stuff, which is what I used to pride myself on. I don't care about that anymore, but I mean, I do kind of, but not like I used to, but when you start to not be able to function like you used to, your physical fatigue is high. That's one indicator. And when you're resting and you're not feeling rested after resting, that also starts to be an indicator. There's lots of things I won't be able to cover them all, but When your emotional fatigue starts to kick in, this was really my first, I was bottomed out physically, but I kept going. It was really emotionally when I stopped being able, I stopped really caring. This is hard to say, but I I lost for being someone who's highly empathetic. I love my work. I love what I do. I was having moments where I couldn't even focus one, but two, like, I just started feeling impatient, irritable, like I was no longer empathetic to my people. And that's when I knew, okay, something is wrong because this is not me. And I would feel my patience getting short. And so that was a big sign. The other big sign that you're truly in burnout is when you're just start to be highly cynical and pessimistic about things, mm-hmm. right? Like taking a previously very positive person and optimistic, I'm realistically optimist, but you know, I just was nothing. It was like the world was dark and I was like, this is interesting. Right. And so having to really look at that and critically look at that and go, okay, where do I even start with this? Right. Cause it's a hard place to start to dig out of. And I kept feeling like the wall, the word I was using all along was like, I kept feeling like I was hitting this invisible wall. You know, I'm still doing my same thing, running at full speed and wham, full speed, wham. And then I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I keep hitting this wall. I keep trying to climb up it and I slide back down. And so anyway, we can talk about solutions if you're interested in that part of the conversation, but really realizing once you're in it. You, you don't want to ever get in that trough of burnout because it's hard to crawl out of. But I do think part of it is, of course, there's a physical component, like I've talked mm-hmm. about. There's an emotional component. There starts with emotional, there starts to be a relational component because your your relationships start to get pinched too. Because during the time for me, I, I had to say no to almost everything social. And so it felt terrible. And luckily I had people around me that loved me and supported me, but I couldn't commit to anything socially. So my relationships took a bit of a toll, right? Because I had no energy. I could give no more output out. Then I do think on the back end of burnout, as you really start to look at it, and it was true for me, there was a little voice in my head that just said, this is more than physical. This is more than emotional 
there's something very values-based starting to creep up in here. And what started to creep up is this sense that, oh, I'm working outside of how I really want to work. It was like somewhere in my career, my purpose started shifting. Mm -hmm. I started really feeling like some of the things I was doing no longer fit me, but I kept doing them because they were proven, they were known, they were familiar, and I was making money. So I just kept hitting the lever, right? The rat in the maze, hitting the lever. And when I really woke up and dove deep in my burnout, I had to do a whole values re-clarification. Like, who am I today? And what makes me happy today? So I was living out of sync or out of congruence with who I had become. And I was still operating on that old model of who I thought I needed to be. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And really spending time going, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. Like there was a segment of work I was doing that was no longer fulfilling to me. And I was starting to get feedback even from the external environment that was saying, this work is no longer good for you. But I just kept pushing through. I was starting to have a little bit more tension with that work I was doing. I was not liking the projects as much. I was spontaneously getting physically ill before having to do that kind of work with that kind of client. So my body was even reacting. So I think when we dig into the aspects of burnout, there's a physical, emotional, relational, and you can call it values-based, you can call it purpose-based, you can call it spiritual-based piece of it too. You can't just look at one component. You can't just say to you, oh, go sleep more. Great, thanks, right? That's part of it, but it's it's all of that combined. And so we have a process to take people through all of that called the burnout reset. So are you seeing, are you seeing more burnout? Are you seeing a different type of burnout? Like since COVID, because, you know, I'm just curious to know if burnout has changed (laughs) since working from home and all of these things that we've been through. Yeah, I think in some ways it has changed the cognitive fatigue. So that's one piece that I didn't really talk about yet. That is part of the equation. I think the cognitive fatigue has really added to this burnout equation. And what I mean by that is, so you have a working parent at home, Mm -hmm. right? And they're having to switch between, oh, I'm jumping on a podcast now. And then I want to get off of here and like trying to keep the kids at bay. And then, you know, you know, I think just having to switch so much, like the whole thing of like multitasking, right? Like (laughs) people might say they're good multitaskers, but you know. With that brain just switching constantly is exhausting. And I think that's what COVID did for us is that we had to just cognitively switch so much. So that pushed in on that physical fatigue, but also pushed in on that cognitive fatigue. And then that cognitive fatigue depletes our physical resources and you never really can. It's hard to kind of crawl out of that. So that's one piece of it. I did hear a lot of healthcare people that I work with, you know, Mm. to start to say like, I have empathy fatigue. Yeah. You know, like I just, I still love my people and I still love my job, but I'm just exhausted. So I just can't connect as much as I used to, you know, I'm not present as much as I used to be. 
Well, and I can relate to that. For me, a big sign that I need a break, that I need something, like I said, whether it's a break, whether it's a vacation, whether it's something else, right? But a big sign that I need something is when I start to lose focus with clients. Like it's, you know, people ask me, how do you listen to clients all day? And I'm like, it's easy. Like we're talking about interesting things. It's so easy. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I notice when I start to kind of like find my mind wandering, I'm like, okay, I need I need to step back. And I think that that's a big part of anything with burnout, with work, with, you know, anything in that realm is being aware of what it looks like for us. Because mm -hmm. you know, we have these broad things that it looks like, you know, being sleeping, but not really feeling rested, all of those things, but it looks differently for all of us. Yes. And it's going to look yeah. different from job to job too. You know, someone in a job that's not a therapist or a nurse or something like that may not be able to relate to that, you know, inability yeah. to focus type of burnout. And so being able to identify that and then identify, you know, what actually helps you. <laughs> what yes, yeah. And I'm finding a lot of my people are really stepping into this conversation, like getting out of the mindset and the cultural thought process of all the shoulds, I should be doing this, or I have to do this, like, and really starting to level set and really look back and realize culturally, what we do to people in our culture, right? We are high capacity, we're driven, we're capitalistic, right? It's like, mm -hmm. suck it up, move on, mm -hmm. work hard. And all of that's that hustle, has hustle. some <laughs> hustle, right? The whole hustle culture, like all of that. And there, obviously there's upsides to all of it, but I think there are people right now, I think it's slightly related to the great resignation. People starting to go, gosh, I'm tired of doing all these shoulds. Like I have been shoulding all over myself yeah. for <laughs> 10 years of my career, 20 years of my career. And and I think people are just really looking at that really different. So burnout, it's here. And I don't think it's going away. It's kind of like all these words that are kind of buzzwords. Now let's make sure we're defining it the right way. You might just be a moment of stress. It may not actually be burnout, right? Because stress also has its own fatigue and its mm -hmm. own emotions. And well, and its own that. cycles but too. Yes, exactly. I think a piece of this too is culturally, like we didn't even get anywhere near this and we probably won't have time to do it, but we, you know, we need to be taking care of ourselves from the inside out too. I think nutritionally, we do things to our bodies that don't actually set our bodies up to perform long-term. So people physically and nutritionally, there are things to do there that people aren't often really looking at critically like, oh, that makes sense, right? Like the stimulants we're putting into our bodies, we're overstimulating ourselves, right? And then what you're doing to relax. So you stimulate yourself in some ways early in the day, and then you put other types of chemicals in your bodies at the end of the day to pull yourself down. And then, you know, we're really putting our body at war too, right? So we're disrupting our internal homeostasis. And I think short-term fine, right? Short term, live on coffee and carbs, whatever, but you know, long term, they catch up with us. Right. And yeah. so I think we're at a, I think we're in a cool place right now. We have access to all the information we could possibly have out there, but we're really at a place right now where I think people can be really thoughtful about like, okay, I need to walk myself through. I need a process to really start to unpack all this and connect the dots. And I think that's what we're missing 
in social media and all of that, which is where you and I come in, right? And like, we're the dot connectors to help people <laughs> yeah. pull down like, okay, here's all these words. I think I have this, this and that. <laughs> but oh, I how love do I that, dot connectors. <laughs> yeah. How do I un- pull that down? How do I understand it for me? And then how do I have real practical tools, right? And and I think that's where, like, I love what I do is helping people take these concepts and make them practical and useful and heal their life, right? Body, mind, spirit, heart, all of that. So. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. Okay. So how do you get your clients? Who do you work with? I mean, you work with organizations, but do you work with big organizations, little organizations? How can people find you? Things like that. Great. Yes. Yeah. I work with big and small organizations and I do like having a mix in my kind of portfolio, if you will, because they're just different and small companies startups are always super fun because I really do get to touch everything. And I, I am a branding geek. I love branding and marketing and all that stuff. I'm not great on it for myself. (laughs) I'm terrible at it for myself, but I do, you know, so small businesses are great because you really get to look at everything systemically and even have an influence on putting together good systems and processes that support humans and their well-being in organizational life. Bigger systems, those things take longer to change, but they can be influenced. And, you know, I'm at a point in my career, I really am a word of mouth, really, at this point in my career, especially for my bigger clients. And, you know, I still, I do a little, I'm starting to do more on social. I really have been one of those people, like it's probably partly my age, but partly because I haven't had to, you know, I haven't had to use social a lot to promote myself, but my business is continuing to change and evolve. And I want to touch more people's lives. So I'm scaling up and I'm getting ready to launch some online courses. And so that's how people, I think will start to find me in that way. Coaching clients are usually referral based or they, someone knew me and I was referred. Now I'm getting a lot more cold calls for executive coaching and leadership coaching. And some of those have really worked out. I still at this point, keep myself segmented in the leadership, executive coaching and leader health kind of coaching space. You know, a lot of times people are like, oh, are you a life coach? And I I have resisted that word. It's relevant and it definitely, but I think my audience has largely been leaders, executives, you know, and people who I have several people who are kind of under my leader health coaching package. They want to do a little bit of both. They want to be healthier, body, mind, spirit, and they need to be better leaders. So um, yeah, so www.drshanna.com, Dr. Shanna or Dr. Shanna Teal on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all those things. So. And we'll we'll link all of that in the show okay. notes too. But great. this is such an important conversation because I think it's really great because no matter what people do, whether they work, whether they stay at home, whether they're in school, whatever, they can relate to what we're Good. talking about. Good. So yeah. I think it's such an important conversation to have. And I love the work you do. And I love the organizations that bring you in. I want to work for those organizations. I know. Bring someone like you in and really value that side of things. So I think that's incredible. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And you found me, you were very proactive in finding me and tapping me. So (laughs) whatever you're doing there, good job. Keep doing it. You know, and it's it's a really good example of the positive power of social media, right? And how that's how you and I got connected. Yeah. And, and it's also like 
the power, I think, for women entrepreneurs and solopreneurs to just ask, right? Just ask. Right. Like it doesn't hurt to ask, right? Oh, yeah. And you may get a no and you may get a yes and you may get more no's than you get yeses, but you've asked and you put yourself out there and you did that. So I wanted to give you lots of props for that. So, <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I have no problem cold calling people or, or, or <laughs> flipping into people's DMs. Good for you. <laughs> Good. Yeah, that's great. Some of the hard part is that it's not missing it, you know, like oh, the DMs. I miss so many things. So uh, me too. Anyway. Cause I, as yeah. much as I, as much as social media can be used as a tool, I'm terrible at it. So I'm sure people listening <laughs> to this are like, um, I messaged you and you haven't responded. I probably haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know it is. It's just another thing to do, but yeah. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And it sounds like you have quite a diverse career too. And you're just, but the same thing throughout, right? So yes. I, yes. yes. So yeah, if I can support you in any way, let me know. Thank you. Please follow me wherever you're listening to this podcast and on Instagram at okayish podcast. Also, I would love it if you could rate the podcast and leave a review. The best way to get in contact with me is to go to okayishpodcast.com and submit a comment question. You can do it anonymously too, which is so great. I will see you guys next Monday. I can't wait.